Now, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word from Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no God, fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, and so we pray now that whatever might be on our minds or hearts, uh, the potential uh, distractions or things that would cause us to not hear what you have to say to us, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit, that as we seek to turn our attention to your Word that your spirit would attend unto us, that our ears would be opened, our hearts would be soft, our minds would truly consider what you have to say to us. Um, we pray this in and through Jesus. Amen. So, of the many things that the Christian faith teaches, what it teaches about sin, I think, is probably one of the most challenging things for modern people to stomach. How can we really believe what we just confessed a few minutes ago? I mean, as we were reading it, was anyone thinking like, really? Really? Isn't it grossly inaccurate to speak like that? Isn't it just wrong from our experience in the world? Let's say this morning that you're here and you're someone who has not yet become a Christian. You know, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you're, you're, you're asking questions maybe, you're, you're trying to come to an understanding, uh, but you've not yet been born again by the Spirit to faith in Jesus. Can what we just confessed be true? I mean, sure, you make mistakes. Who doesn't make mistakes? But to say that you can't do any good, that's just ridiculous. Or let's say this morning that you're here and, you know, you are a Christian, but you think about people that you know, friends from school and people in your neighborhood and people that you work with, and you have seen them do good things. This doesn't make any sense. 
I mean, there are bad people out there, and we can think of, you know, in the history of the world, the Adolf Hitlers of the world, the evil dictators, you know, human traffickers, people who take advantage of the weak and abuse children. There is evil, but there's also a lot of people who work hard to put their kids through school, who give to charity, money, and time, who strive to make the world better. Can you really say, apart from being born again, we can do no good, are inclined toward all evil, like the catechism says. Or more importantly, what the Bible says, verse 10 of this passage, no one is righteous, no one does good, not even one. Now, to just try to clear up a few things, the Christian doctrine of sin, and specifically total depravity, does not teach that people are as bad as they could be. It doesn't teach that we are constantly doing the very worst evil imaginable all the time. So let's not misunderstand what we're talking about. But it does teach that the depravity or corruption of sin is total in that it affects every part of us. To use the language of the catechism, sin has poisoned our nature, and because of this corruption, we are unable to do any good apart from being born again by God's Spirit. But even with that, perhaps what you might say minor clarification, can we believe that? Three things this morning I want us to think about as we consider this question and this text. First, how can this be true? How can we make sense of what the Bible says? Second, what does this doctrine reveal about us? And then third, why we must believe it. So first, how can this be true? How can we make sense of this teaching, especially as we think about our lived experience in this world? So I want you to begin by imagining a family. A family, let's just say, like mine, right? A husband, a wife, a couple of kids. And now I just want you to imagine that the husband in this family has become embittered to his wife. He finds himself frustrated and angry at her. He's deeply annoyed by her. And for a variety of of reasons, he's just going to kind of cut her out. He's not going to divorce her, but he's going to cut her off emotionally, relationally. They're just going to coexist. For, for whatever reason, he's not going to bring himself to relate to her, to move toward her. Rather, he operates in the family basically as if mom doesn't exist. Now, this man wants to love his kids, and so he, he does all sorts of things to try and love his kids. He helps them with their homework. He, he takes them to soccer practice. He teaches them about forgiveness and love and what's good and right and what's not. He takes them on vacation, though all of these things, we could say, are a bit awkward because on vacation, mom's there too, and there's just this kind of deadness that can be felt, and the kids don't even understand it, but it just feels off and wrong. This husband, in this scenario, he does some things that in a sense we would call good, but yet if we step back and saw the bigger picture What's happening in this family is not good. And I would imagine most of us would be concerned about the kids growing up in this kind of family system. The Bible says 
that we were created to be in a close, intimate, loving relationship with God. We were made to trust Him, to love Him, to do all things as creatures who relate to Him. This comparison I just gave is actually incredibly weak to what the Bible teaches. If this God exists, and if we all know this by virtue of living in His world and being made in His image, then every single part of our lives is to be pursued or enjoyed through Him and unto Him. We were made to relate to God in every part of our life, and so our our family life, we were meant to relate to God. In our work life, in our careers, with our friends, in our everyday activities and hobbies, we were made to relate to God. We were made to, to love God and express that love in the world. We are to love because God is love. We are to live lives of true goodness and righteousness because God is good and righteous. And when people, apart from being born again and knowing God through Jesus, love others, help the poor, give themselves for their kids, if you zoom in, yes, like that, those are good acts in a sense. And yes, God would rather have people do that than kill or abuse or hurt. But if you zoom out and you see what's happening in this bigger picture, there is this deadness and rejection and failure to acknowledge the Creator, there is this contradiction, right? You could imagine that family. Those kids at some point are going to grow up and they're going to probably resent dad because dad taught them about love and forgiveness, but he has been living out a contradiction in front of them his entire life. When we do things that God calls us to do that are truly good, but we won't acknowledge Him. We are living in a complete contradiction because we're doing these things as if we don't need God. We don't need Him for them to be true. We can do them without Him. And again, this whole analogy, it really breaks down because the relationship of a husband and a wife the wife is not foundational to who this man is. His being and his existence is not defined by, and it doesn't flow from his relationship with his wife. His essence and existence isn't dependent on the wife for him to exist. But that's the exact kind of relationship that we have to God. To be created in His image means that we're dependent on Him. We're meant to reflect Him. Our being, our existence flows from Him. It's dependent, derived from Him, the one who made us, the one who sustains us. We can see all sorts of good things that happen in the world, and we should be very thankful to God for all sorts of reasons that, that the bent and corruption in humans does not constantly work itself out in the worst possible ways. But when you consider how we're meant to relate to God in all things, even the good that people do, as it is done in a way that fails to acknowledge God and to thank Him and to love Him and to trust Him and to do it unto Him, even those good things actually demonstrate our poisoned and bent nature. Far from being evidence against what the Bible says, it actually reveals the truth of what the Bible says. Okay, 
Let's consider that second thing. What does this doctrine then reveal about us? Scripture is God's revelation to us. In the Bible, God tells us things about ourselves, about Him, about this world, all sorts of things that we could not just know on our own. We all know that we mess up. We all know that we make mistakes and we hurt other people. I mean, there is not a self-conscious person in this room, a person who's truly aware of themselves that doesn't regret things that they have said or that they have done or thought or regret things that they know they should have done, but they didn't do it. What we see is the tip of the iceberg. But God in His Word shows us what is going on underneath the surface. He exposes what is truly going on. And He does this not because He's mean, not because He hates us, not because He wants to rub our noses in our mess and shame us. He reveals what's going on because He loves us. He tells us the truth about ourselves because He loves us. It is sad to me that sometimes the biblical teaching of sin has been used by Christians or by pastors as a weapon. And what's communicated is, you are so worthless. Look at how much of a failure you are, full stop. That would be like a doctor coming into your room and putting the x-ray up on the machine and saying, look at that broken arm, you idiot. Taking the, the MRI, look at that cancer. Oh, you disgust me. If you were with us last week in Romans 1, the worst thing that God could do is to just hand you over to your sin, hand you over to what in your sin you are saying, which is, I don't want you in my life. He is the divine physician. If he wanted to judge and condemn us, he doesn't need to reveal anything about our situation. We could just go on in blind ignorance of our real condition. If God is exposing our sin, if he's pulling back the curtain on what's really going on and the extent of our problem and the depth of our problem, it's not to shame us. It's not to rub our noses in our mess but it's to make utterly clear why you must embrace Jesus Christ, why we need forgiveness, why we need to be made right, why we need the divine physician. See, what Paul is doing in this passage, he's trying to make utterly clear everyone is under the power of sin. Look at verse 9. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. You see, God is showing us sin is more than just sinful actions or sinful deeds. It is a corrupting power we are under. In verses 10 through 18, Paul starts quoting this string of Old Testament verses and passages to make his case. And these quotations are largely taken from the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah. And what's interesting is in the original context, they depict what's true of the wicked, the bad guys. 
Paul quotes from texts that would have been understood to make an us-them comparison. That's what the wicked are like. That's what the unrighteous are like. They are like that. We are different. But Paul takes these quotations and he uses them to say, when you dig down deep, all of us fit the category of wicked and unrighteous. Jews and Gentiles alike have been corrupted by sin. You may have God's law. You may come from the most religious of families and backgrounds, but don't think for a minute that that somehow excludes you from the corrupting power of sin. This corruptive power of sin, it's universal. It affects everyone. We read in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The extent of this corruption is total. It affects every part of us. If you went back to chapter 1, Paul's already written about how it affects our minds, that our thinking is affected, that we're not as rational as we claim or pretend to be. He's written about how sin corrupts our desires. Our desires are bent and twisted. The compass of our hearts has been, it's wildly off direction apart from Christ. Chapter 2, Paul has written about how even among God's people in their religious life, you can see this corrupting power because they have God's law and they boast in it, but they don't live it out. This corruption and bentness is seen in how we live. Chapters 1 and 2 Paul has given various examples of this, but here in in verses 13 through 17, he zeroes in on this corrupting power of sin and how it can be seen in our speech and our proclivity toward violence and destructive paths. Verse 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I mean, think, think about our speech. Think about the things that we say about other people made in God's image. And think about how we don't have to teach anybody to do any of this. You know, I have a daughter who's in kindergarten, and she comes home and she talks about how, you know, this happened and this happened today, and, and this person told this other person that they couldn't play with them and they weren't allowed to play with the popular group. And it's like, these are five and six-year-olds. And all of us, I mean, can we not think of examples in our own life where we have said things to people that we would claim to love or respect, friends, family, children? We've said things that were hurtful and harsh because we were angry or inconvenienced or we told a half-truth to get out of a tough situation, or we told a lie to get ourselves out and scapegoat somebody else. Verses 15, 16, and 17, think of the history of wars and conflicts among various peoples and groups and nations and races and cultures. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known. And then verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. People do these things, we do these things, and we don't fear God 
He's not relevant. We've erased him from the picture. And the, the concluding ver- verses, 19 and 20, th- there's this courtroom imagery where all of humanity, all of us, are guilty before God. These things are true, and we stand before God, and we are accountable, and there's nothing that we can say to defend ourselves. Our, our hands are over our mouth. We can't make any defense. We are guilty, and we can't make it right. This teaching about sin exposes us. It reveals the true depth of, of our problem and the extent of our problem. Here's why we have to believe this. We must believe what God tells us about sin to understand the gospel, to understand the truly amazing good news about Jesus, because we need someone to set us free. We don't just need some moral improvement or education. We don't just need to make some better choices or change a habit here or there. Apart from Jesus, you and I are slaves of sin. We are stuck. We are captives. And we are not victims in this. We are willing participants that contribute to evil. We need a Savior. We need a righteousness that we could never produce, that we could never make, that we could never contribute to. We need a a, a deliverer. We need a liberator. We need a king who can come and defeat this power. We need the king who has broken into this world of sin and death and evil that was bent away from God. The king who through his death and resurrection defeated the power of sin and death, who makes us right with God through whom we can be declared righteous. We need a king who not only makes us right with God so that we're no longer condemned, but a king who can renew us into God's image so that what is bent and corrupted in us can be reformed and healed and renewed. We need Jesus. This is the message of the gospel. This is what Paul has been proclaiming in Romans, and it makes absolutely no sense if we don't see what our real problem is. You must believe what the Bible says about sin to understand the gospel. And you must believe what the Bible says about sin to respond to the gospel in the way we're meant to respond to the gospel. You see, where Paul is going with all of this is chapter 12, where he is going to say, I urge you through God's mercies to present your body as a living sacrifice, to offer your whole self to God, to give your whole self and your whole life to God. What would you need to believe about yourself for that to sound like amazingly good news? The British pastor uh, from the mid-20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he uh, illustrated the point this way. He says, imagine a bill collector comes to your home while you're out someday, and your neighbor comes and talks to this bill collector, collector and decides to pay your debt for you. How do you respond? Well, says Lloyd-Jones, if you simply forgot to pay the electric bill, You might thank them for their kind gesture, for getting you out of the annoyance of having your electricity turned off. But what if that was an agent from the government, 
And in truth, you owed millions upon millions of dollars in improperly filed taxes and penalties, a debt so big that you would never be able to pay it off. How would you respond to someone who paid that debt? See, if you want bland, impotent, sentimental religion, then believe whatever you want about sin. But if you want power to change and to be transformed, if you want confidence and hope, if you want joy and assurance, then you have to believe what the Scriptures teach about sin. Remember, we only see a part of our sin like an iceberg. We can only see what's above the surface. We see that sometimes we are selfish and unloving and hurtful, but God, in the revelation of the Scriptures, lays bare the painful truth, the deep problem, the severity of our condition. If you will take seriously what God reveals about your sin, you will find in the gospel the love of God in such potency and power that you will be forever changed and transformed and lifted up and filled with joy. This week, I've been thinking about um, John chapter 4, pretty well-known passage, famous passage where Jesus comes and he talks to this Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus comes to this woman. She's got the wrong religion. She believes wrong things about God. She's an outsider and she's sexually immoral. She's had multiple husbands and she's living with someone who's not her husband. And Jesus tells her, the Father is seeking worshipers. That is amazing. See, this passage says, we don't seek God. In our sin, we don't want God. But for some reason, some incredible reason, God wants us and seeks us and loves us and pursues us. It is because of the love of the Father that he sent his Son into the world. It is because of the love of the Son of God that he gave his body to die our death, that by his death and resurrection, the kingdom of peace and love and righteousness would break into this world and break into your life. It is because of the love of the Father and the Son that they send the Spirit, God the Spirit, to make us who are dead and stuck in sin alive by the message of the gospel. The Spirit who testifies to us that we are God's beloved children. The Spirit who enables us to worship the Father in truth. The love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has drawn you and made it possible for you to give your whole self and your whole life to God. You get to give your life to God. You get to serve and worship God in whose service is perfect freedom. That is the gospel. And this is the powerful gospel of God's grace that sustained the church of Rome and made them flourish 2,000 years ago, right? This is the letter that came to the Romans, and you, you have to imagine like 150 people or so trying to live out, offering their whole lives to Jesus in worship and mission in a place like Rome, 
when you consider the challenges of just daily life of living in that place, the challenges that we all have and we know of just relational struggles, the challenges that happen in any church, but certainly a multicultural church where we know there are Jews and Gentiles now trying to relate in the same body, a place where you're called to give your whole life to King Jesus in a society that revolves around the emperor. What else could give that power than the gospel of God's grace? And when we consider today, what do you and I need to offer our whole selves to God in a world where there is so much competing for our time and our resources and our attention? What would we need to move us and to give us confidence to to give our whole selves to God, to offer our whole lives? It is this gospel, this good news that though our sin goes deep than we ever would have thought or ever imagined, God's grace abounds toward us in Christ. Let's take this opportunity right now, as we always do after we have heard God's Word, to turn to Him in light of what He has said to us, to turn to Him and to pray. And so we will take a few moments now in prayer to confess our sins, to ask for God's help, to name perhaps the specific ways this past week that we have sinned and turned from Him. He calls us to confession that we may know His forgiveness and have the assurance of His grace and mercy to us in Christ. And so let's spend a few moments in prayer, and then I will close us in prayer.